of Jesus Christ, the one that he actually has installed upon the earth. And we've been looking at the church from uh, many angles. Um, the series is entitled, again, Mother Kirk. The word Kirk is where we get our English word church. And I love repeating the fact that it simply means the Lord's. That's what we say every time we say the word church. We say it is the Lord's. And so as we look at the church, we're understanding this is the Lord's church. In John 20, we find this time, that particular Sunday in which Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So I invite you to turn there, looking particularly at verse 19 and following. There's this portion that we drop into right now as Jesus Christ himself has already arisen. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. She ran, and thinking him to be um, the gardener, to tell the good news that Jesus Christ is in fact alive. We find the rest of the disciples who are not aware of this yet, to learn now as they are behind a locked door, and Jesus will appear to them. And I invite you as we read to consider the reality that it is so true that in our lives there are many locked doors, many places in which it is very hard for us to speak to one another, love one another, many hurting, dark places in our life that we particularly lock the doors out of fear. Well, here's the reality, is Jesus can get through those kind of doors. And I remember coming to this sermon just now as we were singing about how we believe in the Holy Spirit, that Charles Spurgeon, as he approached the pulpit, he would have to go up a series of steps, and every time he took a step in his voice, he said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then he would take another step and say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, before he went to preach, knowing that unless the Holy Spirit would use his word, none of this would have any effect. But I hope to unlock doors in your soul, because this is what Jesus does. It says this, On the evening of that day, that is Sunday morning, the day he rose from the dead, that night, less than 24 hours later, that is the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There are, as we've seen, four aspects to the church. We confess the church to be one, 
holy, Catholic, and apostolic institution. And let me clarify that when I say institution, particularly in this purpose or for this sermon series, I'm not talking about an institution as we could use the word to describe an organization. So in other words, we could say Walmart or Amazon, they are institutions, and you wouldn't be wrong. But if you were to think that's what I mean when I say institution, you would be wrong. I don't mean institution in the way it's an organization. I mean institution in the way of practice, in the way of management or mission or mandate, right? I mean institution in another sense in which we use the word of the institution of marriage, right? The institution of marriage is not a proper trademark or a 501c3 uh, with uh, some type of organization or business, right? We speak of marriage as an institution in the way the way marriage should be, the way marriage is, the way marriage is practiced. The institution of marriage is one man and one woman for life till death do they part, right? So when I speak of the church as an institution, that's what I mean. I, I mean the church is an institution. It is given particular parameters of a mission, particular parameters of a mandate, particular direction is to go, that you might find organizations that are called the church, New Life Presbyterian Church. Our website says .org at the end, which is pretty cool. We didn't get a .com. I don't know how that happened. But we are an organization, you could say. But that's not what I mean here. We're looking at the church as an institution that has been given a particular mandate and mission from God. And most particularly this morning, as we look at the church being apostolic, that's exactly in the sense that I mean it. It is apostolic. It has been sent. That's what the word apostle means, a sent one. To be apostolic is to be sent. That is, the church is an institution that has been given a particular sending forth. Almost like the wind sends forth the words. There's a particular power to the way the church has been sent. There's a particular power to the way the resurrected breath of Jesus Christ falls upon his apostles who are sent. That's what I mean when we speak of the church as an institution. And of course, it's so important now more than any other time particularly is because it seems as though that concept of an institution and Americans, we should have a right skepticism toward institutions and corruption. But the best surefire way to keep from the corruption of the church is to first know what the church is and what it was meant to do. So, if we look at it this way, institutions or things that are incredibly valuable are prone to forgery. Now, I could use the illustration that, you know, you would want to forge a $50 bill, but that's really irrelevant now with inflation. I'm going to say maybe you want to forge a $100 bill. At least when I started the sermon in the, earlier in the week, it might have been true, but now, you know, factoring in five more days of inflation. I would say that if you want to really, really make some money, you forge some $100 bills, right? So I'm not asking you to, to believe in the Department of Education or the Department of Transportation or the Department of the Treasury, which happens to be part of how we mint our coins and make our dollars. I'm asking you to believe in an institution 
that has been installed by Jesus Christ that cannot fail. But with that, there's a tremendous value because as we say, you cannot have God your father who does not have the church your mother. That is, there is no under normal conditions salvation outside of the church, but salvation is mediated through the world by the church, by no power of the preaching of the people in the church, but by the power and authority of the one who sent the church and which that message saves. And so it's incredibly valuable. This thing called eternal life, it's even better than a $100 bill. The reality would be that if it is valuable, it stands to reason that it could also be in a place of being in danger of forgery, in danger of falsehood. See, on these dollar bills we have in the corner, we put a watermark. That watermark, particularly it's called a watermark, because when they first started making watermarks a few hundred years ago, There was a process in which the paper was very wet when it was being made, and that's when they stamped it. When it was wet and impressionable, and the paper were dry, then you'd hold the watermark up to the light, and you would see an emblem or an image show you it's authentic. Well, that's what we have in our money. Under another bill, a certain corner, you hold up to light, you'll see something to know it's real. What we have here, the four corners, you say, of the church, is like four corners of a dollar bill. It is in one corner, one. It's holy. It's Catholic. It's apostolic. But see, when you hold that church up to the light, when you actually look for the marks of the church, you'll find that in each one of those is the same thing. A stamp. A seal of authenticity from Jesus Christ, which is nothing more than the marks of the church, which is the word of God and its sacraments being appropriately brought to bear on the world. See, the church doesn't conquer the world through the sword. The church conquers the world through water and bread and wine. So when we say the church is one, we mean there's an invisible reality to that. The church is spiritual. That is, Ephesians 4.4 says there is one body and one spirit. So the church is perfectly united as it is united to God through the Holy Spirit. But how do you know if you're in the true church? Speaking with friends to say that particular thing, how do I know if I'm in a real church? There's all these different opinions, all these different types of churches, and many of them change or ebb and flow on purity, and that's fine. Because it's all growth. But there are realities that cannot change. And that is, how do you know the one church is united? It's united in this. The appropriate bringing to bear of the word of God and the reception of the word of God in the context of sacraments as well. Which is the baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church is united that way. Not just subjectively or spiritually, but united objectively. That if you go to a church and these things are happening, congratulations, you are in a real church. But the same thing is true also for the church to be holy. Now we know the church is truly holy because Ephesians 1.13 says we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now that's helpful, but you can't see that. There's a real sealing that is a pressing down upon an individual by the Holy Spirit to claim you, to make you distinct as one who is a saint of God. But that's invisible. Where's the visible holiness of the church? The word and the sacraments. Jesus says in John 17, praying for us as people, sanctify them in truth. 
Your word is truth, you see. There's an objective sanctity to the church that is found in the word. If if you're receiving the word of God, praise God, you're holy. If there's a church receiving the word of God, praise God, you have found an objective, holy church that you can see with your own eyes. The same thing holds true for the church being Catholic. By the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Judeans and Cappadocians, all the ones, all these people, Catholic is universal, all these people across the whole empire, by the Spirit immediately were united in the gospel. Well, how do you know it was a real Catholic church? Not just in a spiritual, invisible way. Well, what happened is they received the words of preached to them about the mighty works of God. Then it says in Acts 2.41, and they all got baptized. The mark. The watermark poured out on the church. And added to the number were all those who were being saved. That is, added to the church, they were being saved. Outside of the church, there is no salvation. If you're truly saved under normal processes, you'll be baptized and brought into the church. Objectively. Like, as, as real as you can see water and feel it with your hands. This is the mark that the real visible church is united, holy, Catholic. And so here this morning we look to see how the church particularly also is apostolic. Apostolic. And I hope the two goals here in my heart would be that this, that this message would bring a particular healing to you And then after you're all healed up, that you would have a particular conviction to preach the gospel to everything that moves. That you would be healed right now by the hands of Jesus Christ. And then after you're healed up, that you would leave this morning and preach the gospel to yourself. Every moment you look into the mirror, And anything that seems like it might have animate life gets the gospel within your vicinity. Let me show you why. It all has to do with the church being apostolic. First is this. Jesus appears. It is on the evening of that day. The day he rose from the grave. He appeared to his disciples. That is, he says, the first day of the week. The beginning of a new creation. The beginning of a new birth. The beginning of a new humanity. The beginning of a brand new work of God at the, began at the beginning of the week. And that is also the beginning of the apostolic church. That Jesus Christ cracked the cosmos. He rose as a man from the grave conquering sin and death. There is a reason we all die, and it's not because this is the way things are, or that's the way it's supposed to be. We die for sin because of curse. No man ever should ever live. And Jesus is one man who is still living, truly living, not resuscitated, not CPR, resurrected, alive, to never die again. And he's breathing And that breath that's coming from his lungs has been a breath that has never passed through the trachea of any man on earth. It's resurrected breath. And he comes behind locked doors to install an apostolic church. He's particularly repetitive over one theme. And this is what I hope would heal your heart. Peace. 
He speaks of peace three times. Remember, resurrected Jesus Christ, the first time he ever sees his disciples since. And all he wants to do is speak peace to them. The doors are locked, we're told, for fear of the Jews. Out of fear, these doors are locked. And Jesus came, just came, and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When we say, hello, how are you doing? There's a layer to this here that was common for Jewish culture in this time to simply just say as a matter of saying hello, peace be with you. There's another layer to the fact that these doors were locked. It's a startling intrusion. Peace be with you. But you see, do you see what's really going on here? These doors are locked for fear. These doors are locked for fear of the Jews. Ridicule. Slander, persecution, and yes, of course, death. That is how their Lord, their teacher died under the hand of these Jews. So the door, of course, is locked for fear of death. And no matter how the door is locked, Jesus appears and says, peace. We live bound We live bound all the time by fear. And we understand it to be normal to be bound by fear. We lock doors at night so no one comes into our house out of fear. We live in a world that is riddled with wickedness and sin and destruction and death and fear. He appears before them through those locked doors and the text particularly says... As he said this, as he said, peace be with you. It says, as he said this, he showed his hands and his side. The meaning is that the source of this peace is found in his scars. That there is a particular victory that has been won in Jesus Christ. In which it should be possible upon meditating on these scars that you have no fear. Now you would say, no, you're supposed to have fear. Yes, there's a healthy fear, a concern for your children. Buckle up, wear a helmet, sure. But I mean this kind of fear where you are bound Do you understand what happened after Pentecost? Peter preaches in the courtyard of the very ones who killed his Lord. That's not just because he's Peter. Those scars are also your scars, you see. If you are bound by fear, you should not be. And yes, it is a war. And yes, it is hard. But these scars, do you believe in God our Father, Christ the Son, and that Holy Spirit that He breathed upon them? 
We have many doors that are locked. And yes, these scars are first and foremost evidences. He's presenting himself to his disciples whom he lived with, saying, believe your eyes. I am the one who you think I am. Look at these scars. I'm not a man that looks like your Messiah. I'm not a man that has the same haircut or facial expressions of your Messiah. I'm the man who was on that tree. These are mine. You remember when they stabbed me. This is evidence to you that I am he. But it's more than that. As he's speaking peace to them, these are not just scars that show that he is the one true teacher who has passed through their hands that can only come back again. These scars are scars. They're not wounds. They are healed. They're not bleeding. There's indentation or a hole. But they are healed. He is sound. He is standing. He is talking. And praise God, He is breathing even today. If you have any motions of the Holy Spirit upon your soul, you must understand it's because there is a man at the right hand of God who breathes for you. And he has given his Holy Spirit on this world to do powerful things. See, we, we suffer. You suffer in your marriage, suffer with your children, suffering with memories, suffering with dark clouds that overcome your mind regularly. But there is a peace that is found in the piercing of Jesus Christ. I remember when I was a small boy, uh, running in a neighbor's yard, we were playing tag. And the father of that house decided to cut down a shrub, a very large shrub, in which it had many um, sources of a trunk. It wasn't one trunk straight, but it had all these angles that were all cut at various degrees. And it was just a, a bouquet of spears sticking out of the ground. And of course, as I'm being chased, I'm running, and I decide to clear that cut-down shrub. And I didn't jump as far as I thought I should. I thought I could. So the way I landed on this thing is it went right through the center of my left shin. And I was young enough to know that that was the first time I really probably saw trauma. And it so happened to be also my personal experience of trauma. And so I kind of pulled my leg out of this thing and sat there and thought, huh, that hurts. And then I decided I'm going to look at it. And I did. And I saw my bones. And I said, huh. And I said, hey, could one of you guys go get my mom? <laughs> Today, I have a mark on my leg. And it's from a deep scar that hurt at one point in time. But you know the beautiful thing about scars? Is once you have one, you don't feel anything afterwards. And so I could tap that portion of my leg, and I don't even feel it. T 
Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Like, he's scarred for you. Like, this is so beautiful. Yes, your sin has hurt him. It really hurt. He really felt it. And you need to know that he doesn't feel it anymore. He has scars that are healed. All they serve is a visual reminder of your sins that once were. But never again to be a visceral reminder of the pain that they caused. That's the gospel. That's his scars, you see. Do you see how he comes and presents himself with peace? He says, peace be to you. You are not my enemies. I have your scars on me. And every time I look at them, I see you. And I remember you. And I intercede for you next to my Father's throne in heaven. But remember this, that I only remember you as my love. I never feel the pain you caused me. These scars are very well healed. And there is no nerve ending of pain left to them. Peace. You imagine the posturing of Christ when he says, Peace be with you. So what are you going to be afraid of in this life? What could you possibly fear? Many of us carry scars. Many of us have been hurt and abused by the sins of those around us or the own wickedness of our own heart. Many of us have scars that go deeper than the bone. You need to know that our Savior did not suffer as a sufferer. He suffered as a Savior. He suffered for you. That is, all your suffering, all your pain, and all your fear, there is a source of solution in this, in his scars. That is, it says in the text particularly that when they saw him, they were glad. Now you were to think, oh, if I could just see Jesus, that'd be different. I'd be happy and I'd be glad. Do you know right after this will be the moment where Thomas says, I won't believe anything until I see him and put my hands in his side and see the marks on his hands. And Jesus simply said, oh, how much more blessed it would be to believe without seeing. And then he went like this. And he gave them the Holy Spirit. What I mean to say is, you may meditate upon these scars, though you cannot see them. I have a story of an old woman who was fatally sick and dying. Now I have to give it to you as a story because I haven't entered that stage yet. But her testimony is this, that she would go in and out of the hospital every other week. She would have a disease 
wreaking havoc on her internal organs, causing her pain no matter which angle she sat or however she propped herself in bed. She was visited by her pastor regularly. She said to him, Pastor, it hurts very much. The pain is almost intolerable. But when I think about his wounds for me, it starts to go away. And sometimes when I meditate upon the scars of Jesus Christ, the pain leaves entirely. There's a reality to knowing that everything you have in this life is meaningful because of those scars. That you can look upon them with the eye of your mind by the Spirit. And it is true healing and true peace indeed. And so he repeats himself. The second time. It's always funny to me how Jesus could speak peace to a storm one time and the storm would listen. But even here with us in our tumultuous souls, Jesus speaks multiple times out of love. And so he said again, verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. And there you have the apostolic church. See, right now, at this present moment, under this preaching of the gospel, you are in the apostolic church. Right now, as those were sent from Christ, in a very real way, with an ounce of self-importance at all, I have been sent by Jesus Christ to preach this to you. And you are here to hear it. See, there's a concept we don't know about at all. Salia, in the Hebrew, was a legal term. It meant something akin to our idea of a power of attorney. See, a salia was an emissary, someone who was sent. But not just sent as a messenger. A person sent, a person that is sent, is sent as the one who sent them. That is, whatever they say, whatever they do, they do it 100% in proxy of the one who sent them. With the same vitality, with the same authority, with the same power and import as the king or so who sent as the messenger. The being sent here is not, we understand, miss the concept entirely if we think of it with our idea of someone just sending a message. Jesus is speaking of this in John 13 where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That is the apostolicity of the church. That is what makes the church have its appropriate authority. There is in the whole concept of Jesus' Hebrew mind what he's saying is that this authority that which I send you out with is not your authority. It is my authority. It is the authority of the Spirit which gives glory to me. And Jesus says my authority is not only my authority, it is the one who has sent me. If you reject my messengers, you rejected me. If you reject me, you reject the God, the Father who sent me. That strong link, that strong drive into the world is 
rigid with authority. It is not lax. It is not slack. It is not maybe I'll hear the gospel from you. Maybe I'll listen about Jesus. The legal realities are if someone comes to you with the gospel, it is as though you rejected Yahweh himself and slapped him across the face. It will be treated that way at the day of judgment. This is the concept of apostolicity. This is the concept of the gospel that goes out under the authority of the one who sent it. And so Jesus comes to his disciples and he simply speaks this kind of power upon them. And he said this as he breathed upon them to give them the power to carry out such a calling. Receive the Holy Spirit. And it's evident, of course, that this is not when they actually receive the full power of the Holy Spirit. Because what you'll find shortly after is, in the next chapter, they're bickering with one another about who's the greatest. A lot of, lot of uh, church hierarchies love doing that. And then they also go back up to fishing. That doesn't make sense if you're an apostle. Apostle sent to preach the gospel. Next chapter, they're fishing. And then, of course, right after this, Thomas won't even believe unless he sees. It doesn't seem like the Holy Spirit is operating in the power that we find shortly as the church is born with its power 50 days later at Pentecost. But it does come. And when it comes, it changes everything. No more hiding behind locked doors. No more skipping around trying to catch a few fish just to make some food and money. Straight down to the center of the city. Standing on the biggest soapbox that you could find in ancient Israel before they had soap. And preaching the gospel to the point of being killed like your savior. That's the apostolic church. That's the church that has been breathed on by the Holy Spirit. It all starts with Jesus who was sent. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then in John 15, we find Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. He says, the Helper will come, the Holy Spirit whom I will send. That is, so the Father sends the Son, and Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on in John 15, 26, to speak about these particular 12. Not just the general ones who are sent like all of us, but these particular 12 pillars to the church called apostles, sent ones. It says, the helper will come, the Holy Spirit, in John 15, 26, whom I will send from the Father. That Spirit will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness and report of everything that has been done from the beginning. That is, a particular apostle in Acts one twenty two is one who has seen Jesus Christ from the beginning of his baptism to his resurrection and ascension. That particular generation of those particular 12 men were the apostles with a particular gift from the Holy Spirit to remember everything that was done, to speak about it with perfect truth and authority and fallibility, and which comes down to us through the apostolic writings of Scripture. And so, how are you knowing you are in an apostolic church? I have a warm spiritual feeling in my heart. Praise God, keep that. But how do you know with your own eyes that you truly are in a true church? Be wary of the church where the man comes up and starts talking about what he thinks. If his rhetoric, no matter how smooth, and his thoughts, no matter how fine and intellectual, do not come from these writings. It is not apostolic. You have found yourself a cult. Nothing more. 
and nothing less. This authority, this authority extends. Do you see, this is an appeal to authority. The idea that a messenger would be sent with the same authority. The concept would be nothing more than when it's beautiful fall time shortly from now. Do you want to go fly fishing and stand into a river and feel the cool water rushing past your legs? Do you understand that cool water didn't just show up? Melting snow ice caps from the top of a high mountain. As the Father sent the Son, the Son has poured out the Spirit. The Spirit has endued the apostles with a charism of infallible authority. And as that word goes forth, it is accompanied by that same living Spirit in which the church built upon these apostles has pastors and bishops and overseers. And then it reaches down to the people, to the, you find somebody and you preach that gospel to them. It is true when Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now see, a dictator has power, but no authority. Raw power without appropriate authority. Our God is not a dictator. He has power. And it is a rightful power, therefore it is also authority. That authority is apostolic authority. The reason the gospel is the power of God for salvation is because it comes down that stream. And therefore, Jesus' words stand. And this is why the church is that one institution of salvation. If you forgive sins of any, hear this, they're forgiven. And if you withhold the sins or withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That is not because of apostolic authority. That is not because as a preacher I might be able to withhold your sins. That is not because you can counsel someone along the gospel and say, I choose not to forgive you. No, no, no. You misunderstand the whole verse if you don't understand what apostolic means. It all goes back to scars. As the Father has sent Jesus into the world, and as Jesus has sent the Spirit and as that word has met anyone, anywhere, anytime, if you reject that message, you have no forgiveness. If you accept that message, Jesus, by that very apostolic authority, has forgiven you. It is in the perfect past. That is, you are forgiven. It is complete. As sure as those scars have healed. And there is nothing left to talk about or feel about except to worship him and to be at peace you see, is a message for peace, the third peace, the peace to know that all your sins are gone definitively. This is the church that is apostolic and sent into the world to bring nothing more than peace and to conquer the world through water and bread. Dear Father God, we ask you, we ask you, Lord, to rule and reign over this world. We ask you, Lord, that all the violence and evil and suffering that we have that originates from our own hearts and this wicked world that we live, we are confident to know that there is a church who is the pillar and buttress of truth, that it is built on the firm foundation 
As Jesus, our Lord, you have said you will build your church and nothing will prevail against it. So, Father, you have given us this ministry of reconciliation and peace. May you, by your Spirit, draw, draw this nation to your table and let them pass through your water that they might truly have peace and for the remission of all sin. Lord, give us, this church, this particular apostolic power, and all your churches in our country, that we might be able to say we have seen a revival and a reformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand if you're able?